What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Richard Betts. He's the head of the Climate Impact Strategic Area at the Met Office, the lead author on several reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and a professor at the University of Exeter. There are few areas of science as contested as the climate. I wanted to speak to someone who has been researching this area for more than three decades to discover why there is so much disagreement over fundamental questions like whether the Earth's warming is actually caused by humans. Can we stop it? How accurate are the climate models? Should we switch to renewables? What does Richard think of Extinction Rebellion? How much are China to blame? And much more. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. But now it's time to learn about the state of climate science with Richard Betts. Richard Betts, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I wanted to try and have a conversation with you to work out how there is so much disagreement about climate science. People are prepared to accept that eating too much makes you fat. Well, not everyone, but most people that are sane do. Uh, Smoking causes cancer. But climate science seems to probably be one of the most contested areas that I've seen. So for the people that aren't familiar with you and your background, what are your credentials and what do you do? So I'm a climate scientist at the Met Office, which is the UK's National Weather Service and Climate Service. And I'm also a professor at the University of Exeter. Uh, So I train as a physicist. Uh, I have uh, a master's in meteorology and a PhD in meteorology. Uh, And I've worked in the Met Office's climate research department, the Hadley Centre, for nearly nearly 30 years. So I've been working on the climate modelling and then bringing in observations and these days applying it to risk assessments to to understand what we might have to do in response to climate change. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, what is the role of that? What's the duty of that? So, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm a lead author on one of the, well, several of the reports by the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. The role of that uh, is to... Uh, produce authoritative assessments of the science uh, of climate change in many different aspects. Uh, so the, the physical science, understanding the changes that are occurring, what we're expecting for the future, but also the, uh, the implications for human impacts, uh, biodiversity impacts and so on. And, um, and the uh, perhaps more challenge, even more challenging than all that, the, the different options um, for reducing climate change in, in terms of mitigation. Uh, the IPCC is uh, somewhat unique, and it also links very closely to uh, to government. It's not a government document, but it is designed to inform government policy. So part of the process at the end is to work very closely with representatives of the world's governments uh, to to make sure that they are bought in to the, uh, the, uh, the 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 science of it. And that's where it gets particularly interesting at the end the, at the end of the process. But it is a scientific document ultimately. Talk to me about this tension that I brought up earlier on then. Why is it the case that there can be so much contested about something that, to me, sounds like a science? So I think what is more contested is actually uh, what the responses are and what what the science is 
taken to imply rather than the science itself. I mean, with any science, there's there's still always uh, somewhat different views. Uh, You can interpret uh, things in somewhat uh, different ways, especially when it's a big and complicated subject. But there's very few people, if any, that can test the basic fundamental uh, science of uh, climate change in terms of greenhouse gases exist, carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, greenhouse gases keep the earth warmer than it would have been, um, as other gases like methane, water vapour, they're also greenhouse gases. Hardly anybody disputes that. Uh, where the controversy comes in, some of it is in terms of what we are expecting for the future, in terms of how severe the future impacts will be if we keep building up more greenhouse gases into the, in the atmosphere, particularly carbon dioxide. There's a wide range of possible outcomes of that so people will tend to focus on either the, the worst case or the best case scenarios but even beyond that there's uh, the, the deepest controversies about what this really means how urgent it is to to reduce uh, emissions should we just live with the changes that we've put into place how severe will those be so it's when you get further down that chain that the real controversies come in i think mm. how accurate are the climate models now because even i know that the weather guys get it wrong sometimes and if they can't predict what newcastle or austin texas is going to see tomorrow whether it's going to rain or not i imagine that all of the complexities rolled forward over 10 years globally must be kind of difficult yeah so work, working in the met office uh, obviously the, the main a main role of the met office to do the weather forecast day to day and week, week by week and so on uh, uh, and, and yes, you can't always predict a few days ahead exactly what's going to happen. We are actually are pretty good now within within, within a few days, uh, perhaps even a, a week ahead in, in some cases. But it, yeah, the atmosphere is very complex. So uh, you're trying to predict individual weather day to day and hour to hour. You can't do that more than a few days ahead. Beyond that, you're looking at trends. So you can look at general trends of whether it's going to be you know, a generally warmer or milder winter, for example. But then you're looking kind of more about the, the balance of likelihoods. When you go beyond that, you can't predict day by day, year by year, because there's so much complexity. But what you can successfully uh, uh, look at is the longer term trends uh, of warming and general patterns of rainfall change. And actually, the uh, the early climate models that were produced in the 1960s and early 1970s, they made uh, predictions which have now been shown to be accurate. So it was predicted in the early 1970s that by the year 2000, the world would warm by 0.6 of a degree Celsius. That turned out to be reasonably accurate. The, the true figure was about half a degree. So it was a slight overestimate, but not too bad. Uh, and the warming has continued since then. So so we've, we're now in a state where we are able to see that the early predictions of climate science are broadly coming true. We're now also seeing more extreme weather of some kinds, so uh, more extreme heat waves. Uh, in some areas, more extreme uh, rainfall, uh, more increased drought in other areas. Uh, that gets more difficult to tease out particular signals, but we are seeing those starting to change now. So broadly speaking, we, we know that we, we were saying the right things 30 or 50 years ago, uh, but this, we still can't really yes, predict perfectly uh, for many years in the future because the, the system is so complex and chaotic. So then becomes a, a, a task of risk assessment rather than trying to make perfect predictions you see is co2 the sort of fundamental underpinning or one of the main pillars of what you guys are are looking at with regards to climate change co2 is very important it's not the most important greenhouse gas in terms of its effect on the climate at the moment because the most important gas is water vapor um, we're not directly changing water vapour in terms of human activity, except for very small uh, amounts of areas where we're irrigating. Uh, so we're concerned about CO2 because that's the one that we're increasing the most in the atmosphere and it stays in the atmosphere a very long time, uh, decades to centuries. If you uh, consider the, if, if, you, if you increase the amount of CO2, that increase will, will be there for, for decades or centuries uh, uh, ahead because it doesn't break down chemically in the atmosphere. So that's why the focus is on um, uh, is on C- CO2, but there's other gases like methane uh, and nitrous oxide as well are also greenhouse gases that we are increasing. What's happening with water vapour? So water vapour also changes, uh, and that changes in response to climate change. Uh, so as the world warms, uh, a warmer atmosphere can hold more water. So water vapour can be a feedback 
mechanism uh, on climate change so it can it can actually increase the impact of uh, of co2 and other, other greenhouse gases you see so it's like a catalyst let's say that there is a warming on the earth that increases the water vapor which permits more of a warming yeah yeah exactly yes yeah interesting what about the increased greening from co2 because this is something that i've heard about that the parts per million that you can get if you have greenhouses where farmers and horticulturalists are growing particular things, that they want their PPM to be through the ceiling and that we're nowhere near that amount. Increased greening presumably would mean more plants. More plants would mean that they absorb more CO2, which would then bring the CO2 level down. So talk to me about how all of that pieces together. Yeah, so that's something which I've worked on uh, myself and I've published on uh, several times. And in fact, some of my PhD was on that exact issue, actually. So, yes, uh, when you put more CO2 in the atmosphere, that enhances photosynthesis, the process through which plants grow. So plants uh, will take up some of the CO2 from the atmosphere uh, through photosynthesis. So that's a negative feedback. So actually, if that didn't happen, we would have warmed the earth even more because the CO2 wise would have been even greater than it has been. So we'd have seen probably double the amount of uh, uh, warming than we had seen. CO2 is also taken up in the ocean to some extent uh, as well. So that is an extremely important uh, process. And uh, so it is part a large part of the reason of why we're seeing greening of the earth. Where you can see from the satellite that some areas of the earth have denser vegetation cover, especially kind of semi-arid regions where uh, there's, there's yeah, limited water. So higher CO2 means plants need less water um, so they can they can green up more. There's other reasons for the greening that we're seeing change in land use. Also, the warming of the climate itself uh, in the very cold regions, simply warmer temperatures mean you get longer growing seasons. So there's many factors behind the greening, but the CO2 uh, is one of them. The reason that's also important for the future is we 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 don't know for sure whether that will continue to the same extent in the future. Uh, you know from laboratory studies that this uh, the, the impact of CO two on on photosynthesis it kind of it kind of flattens off at high levels of CO two, um, but we also know that higher temperatures as well as leading a longer growing season in cold regions that can have a detrimental effect in hot regions. Uh, so the key question is, will this beneficial effect of CO2 continue into the future? Uh, we need to do more large scale experiments in real ecosystems with high levels of CO2 to really be sure about that. So, again, it's an open question. So when you're considering risk assessments, you need to account for a range of possibilities of how CO2 will affect, will affect reading in the future. How have you been able to tease apart the industrial impact on CO2 in the atmosphere? So... Uh, we know for sure that the uh, the CO2 rise is, is entirely man-made because the uh, the amount that we're putting in the atmosphere from fossil fuel burning is way more than the amount that we're seeing uh, building up in, in the atmosphere, uh, about double, uh, in fact. So simply by conservation of mass, you know, we're, we're putting 10 billion tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere every year from, from burning fossil fuels, another one or two billion from deforestation. The amount of buildup in the atmosphere is only equivalent to about five or so billion tons of carbon per year. So simply by the by, by, by the arithmetic there, uh, it, uh, we, we know that what the increase is due to the uh, industrial impacts. It's been offset by the natural uh, impacts of uh, up, uptake of CO2 by natural vegetation. How do you know that that wasn't just a, a trend that was occurring and that's now been continued? Well, we, we, we've, you can look back uh, in, in, in time over from getting data from ice cores. Uh, if, you, if you drill down into, into ice layers on the layers of ice that have been built up over thousands of years and examining the bubbles of air trapped in the ice as the snow fell uh, and trapped air within it and then turned to ice, uh, you've got a record of the atmosphere going back thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. So you can analyse that and see what, see what the CO2 concentration was. And before we started burning fossil fuels in the Industrial Revolution, the CO2 levels were hovering around about 280 parts per million for many, many thousands of years. Uh, and they did go up and down in the, in the more distant past. You can infer it from fossil records it did change naturally in the past in response to very large-scale changes in global ecosystems but in a much slower rate than what we've seen in recent recent decades the rate of co2 increase is just way more than anything's been seen in the previous uh, paleoclimate record 
I heard something about the Milankovitch cycle, which is this sort of climate wobbling up and down in temperature. We're going up and down, and this is part of a small mm -hmm. uptrend before we then go further down. How much legitimacy do you see in that? Yeah, so that uh, that, that again, that's that, that's perfectly uh, a good piece of climate science that uh, uh, that uh, colleagues of mine have, have worked on for many many decades or more. Uh, so the uh, so yeah, this, the the, the, the the ice ages are generally linked to these Milankovitch cycles, the change in the Earth's orbit and the and the the, the, the tilt of the Earth. Um, so that that's uh, yeah an external forcing on the climate system. We, we we call it so change in the Earth's energy balance or the patterns of how the energy from the sun is reaching the Earth occur due to these changes in Earth's orbit and the and the the tilt of the Earth. That can then lead these kind of feedback processes, like with the carbon cycle, which mean that yeah, as vegetation changes over the world, it can take up more CO2 for some periods or release more CO2 as you come back out of the cycle. And this is all, all part of our understanding of how a, a feedback process in the climate system. So the, re the reason that this is important is because that then lets us see when we're looking at how we're warming the earth with Earth, with other forcings like human caused increase in CO2, how feedbacks may then amplify or dampen that uh, in, in the future. So it all links together as our understanding of the climate system. What's the current projections that you guys have got with regards to temperature and CO2? I don't know, let's say that we don't make too many changes and kind of things were to continue as they are at the moment. What happens to mm. temperature and CO2 concentrations? So if we carried on um, as as we are, uh, we would we would see global warming of anywhere between two and uh, possibly up to four degrees celsius by the end of this century it's very hard to be precise because we don't know the strength of all the feedbacks so the best guess is probably somewhere below three degrees warming by the end of the century if, if we carry on uh, as we are with currently implemented policies on energy and, uh, and land use just to interject uh, there richard what when you mm -hmm. say um on average when when a climate scientist says on average an increase in this Mm -hmm. how's that figure worked out is that an aggregate across all areas around the globe because presumably certain areas will increase by more certain areas will increase by less how, how do you come to that figure yeah exactly so, so this, this this is all done uh, with, with climate models which are essentially the same models that we use for the weather forecast so these are models uh, based on mathematical equations which represent our understanding of the physics of the climate system uh, so uh, we, we understand the workings of the atmosphere pretty well, uh, so we're able to uh, make these calculations which can explain past changes in climate and make projections of the future. As I said earlier, you can't make perfect predictions, uh, there's a certain amount of uncertainty, but if you compare the models with what they've done in the past and compare with what we've observed in the past in terms of past warming, you can actually narrow the uncertainties to some extent. Uh, so, so these projections I've just talked about are based on uh, a, a, an assumption of uh, carrying on emitting as we currently are, as, as you, you posed the question, but also how that plays out in terms of the response of the climate system linked to what we understand from past changes. Yeah, so we've got this water vapour as one of the examples. You have exactly. this feedback mechanism, so you have a first-order effect, which is an increase of CO2. Then you have a second-order yeah. effect, which is an increase of water vapour. Then a third-order effect, which is CO2 in response to the water vapour, and so on and so on. And Yeah, so I mean, yeah. that, the computers that you've got running these models must be pretty big and pretty sophisticated because you can already begin to see how when you put that across an entire globe, just how many degrees of separation you are away from what you're trying to do in what a 80 years time to try and arrive at these sort of figures yes yeah i mean so it, 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 these models are, are, are vast uh, there uh, is two million lines of fortran code we still use fortran which a lot of computer scientists uh, uh, f f find amusing because it's a very old computer language but it is actually it's a very well used language in in in, in climate science because one of the important things is Many people work on these models over, over years and decades, uh, so it's got to be uh, a particular computer language which, which helps with collaboration, it's got to be very clear and structured. Uh, so there's dozens, maybe even hundreds of people have worked on the Met Office model uh, over the years. So, so it's yeah, two million lines of Fortran which represent the mathemat mathematical equations, which represent the physics of the climate system. These calculations are done for ten tens of thousands of points across the Earth's surface and many, many layers in the atmosphere. So yeah, huge, huge models which take weeks to actually do the calculations, in fact.
That's crazy. I mm. had heard something uh, to do with where temperatures are detected, temperature changes. How do you ensure that there isn't a um, discrimination with regards to where temperature changes are measured? Let's say that it, you take them from particular areas and not from others or areas are more mm. represented. I'm going to guess that this is something you guys have to account for as well. Yes, exactly. So, so uh, colleagues of mine uh, in the Met Office and in other institutions across the world have done a lot of work on this um, because there's, there's thousands, tens of thousands of data points of weather information taken across the world every hour, probably even every minute these days, actually. Uh, and bringing that together is is done routinely for monitoring weather and helping to with the weather forecasts. Uh, and is now done very systematically across the world and there's quite high standards for that. If you want to look at climate change in the past, if you go back a few decades, the quality is very good. We've got satellite data as well, which also helps give a big picture. But if you go back, you know, in the 80s and 70s, you have got satellite data. If you go back before that, the the network of weather stations across the world is less systematic. Um, we've got measurements taken from aircraft and ships and weather balloons as well. But once you go back to the start of the early 20th century, you've got much more sparse data. And then beyond that, you're much more limited. And uh, sometimes, in many cases, you have to be very careful about whether this data is reliable, especially if weather stations have, have perhaps even shifted, uh, like a particular town has moved its weather station from one side of town to the other. You've got local effects like... An urban area will generate uh, its own temperature impacts and so on. You might have had a forest cut down, a wind, that kind of thing. So you have to account for these by cross-checking uh, the weather stations in, in, in certain areas. Uh, and there's a lot of quality control goes into that now. Um, and uh, so it's not, it's not a trivial matter. You can't just look at the raw station data because you will get a very misleading uh, picture. You have to do this kind of cr uh, cross-checking uh, to make sure you get a, a clear and, and accurate uh, picture of change over time. What happens if we get to the end of the century and we're less than three degrees but more than two degrees warmer? So uh, I would say we, we will probably have initiated uh, some uh, some severe long-term sea level rise impacts at the very least because uh, it seems that well, mountain glaciers are already melting because we, we've warmed the world already. So we're already locking ourselves into uh, putting more meltwater into the oceans and therefore more sea level rise. We're seeing sea, sea level rise happening already. Uh, we may well have initiated uh, some further long-term uh, impacts of uh, melting a part of ice sheets in Greenland uh, and uh, Antarctica. Uh, if we keep warming below three degrees, perhaps we won't uh, kick off the, the worst of these. But I think exceeding two degrees does risk uh, some major impacts like that. And also we will have changed weather patterns uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, some of the hotter parts of the world, which are already kind of almost on, on the edge uh, of what uh, humans can live with day to day, will we'll be going past areas, past uh, times of extreme heat stress for humans and so on so places like the indian subcontinent parts of africa uh, a two degree world would probably expose about a billion people uh, to extreme heat stress for more than 10 days uh, a year we've, we've calculated so the hotter parts of the world would be seeing severe impacts and then we'd be seeing impacts on biodiversity the colder regions of the world where a lot of the ecosystems and species of animals and plants are adapted to uh, to cold uh, temperatures they won't be seeing the cold temperatures they're used to, so we'll be seeing massive impacts on biodiversity and, and human life there as well, actually, mm. in terms of you know, ways, ways of life, which you know, cultures which are adapted to cold temperatures, you see. What about if we get closer toward four degrees? Is there a step change that occurs there, or is it just more of the same horrors? It, it's very hard to say whether there's any kind of particular step change. You often hear, you know, uh, uh, about you know critical thresholds and so on. You can't yeah, really like runaway uh, cyclical natures of stuff. Yeah, so so you, you can't put your finger on any any particular level of global warming that would that would that would definitely uh, kick off any kind of. Uh, chain reaction but the more uh, warming we put into the system the more we risk these large-scale changes like a, a, a irreversible uh, melting of the Greenland ice sheet for example which would take centuries to millennia to completely melt away but you can reach a point of no return with the Greenland ice sheet where as it melts the surface of the ice sheet comes down to warmer temperature in the lower atmosphere and that sort of feeds on itself. Just, just explain that to me. 
So the Greenland ice sheet uh, is very thick. It's miles thick. Uh, so as the surface of that uh, melts under higher temperatures, the surface comes down lower into the atmosphere and the lower part of the atmosphere is warmer than the higher atmosphere. So you could bring the surface of the Greenland ice sheet into an area of warmer uh, temperatures and that could mean the warming and the melting could could, could feed on itself, you see. Uh, so that's, yeah. that's one so of the irreversible changes. By being high, you're actually protected and refrigerated and you have a, a, a frozen area which covers over an area that perhaps would be even now prone to melting but it's kind of it's almost yeah. protected over the top yeah yeah exactly that's right so and there's other potential kind of tipping points in the climate system which 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 uh, which may exist but we don't know exactly where so one very famous one uh, is the uh, amazon rainforest tipping point where uh, some early models of ours uh, projected a very severe warming and drying in the amazon region um most models don't project such a severe drying now, it has to be said. So so that's actually something of a, of a relief uh, to some extent. However, most models do project something of a drying and warming in that region. And that means that uh, the, the other impact on the Amazon is from deforestation. So the real threat from uh, to the Amazon probably comes from a combination of deforestation and climate change. So this kind of milder drying of the Amazon, that means that any impacts of deforestation would would be worse. Uh, because de uh, deforesting the, uh, the Amazon means that, that the edges of the forest dry out and become more susceptible to fire. So it's more complex than simply a climate-driven dieback that the older models showed. It's more a link between deforestation and climate. Is the Amazon benefiting from increased greening from CO2? Is that helping it to grow back more quickly? Uh, large parts of it at the moment, yes. Uh, some parts of it, no. Some parts of it are, are now so uh, so warm and, and getting drier and are becoming impacted by deforestation and degradation that they're not benefiting. Uh, but large parts of it are. So a key question for us uh, is how long will that continue in the future? Uh, we, we've, we've recently initiated, uh, well, I say we, colleagues of mine in Brazil are setting up a major experiment in the Amazon rainforest to look at exactly this. Uh, will the rainforest remain resilient and will it take, take up more CO2 as CO2 levels uh, are increased? So that's a big piece of science that, that needs to be done to help us uh, you know, narrow down the uncertainty in our models. Talk to me for a second. I want to try and get into the um, philosophical underpinning of what climate, not necessarily climate science, but what um, having a climate-conscious um, worldview is actually trying to achieve, whether or not it's trying to keep the planet the same, whether it's trying to make it as hospitable for humans as possible, whether it's trying to um, keep a hold of biodiversity, whether it's, as my friend and past guest Charles Eisenstein said, just yeah. trying to retain the beauty of the planet as much as we can. What do you see as the goal of whatever you would refer to it, climate conservation, perhaps. Um, what, what's the actual outcome that we're aiming for? So, I mean, th that probably comes down to something of a personal view. So I can only offer my personal view on this, and others will have a different, different view. But for, but for me, uh, it's, it's uh, from, the, from the point of view of humans, it's about making sure that we, we don't make our environment, uh, you know, uncomfortable and therefore and ultimately impossible for ourselves in, in, in certain places. Uh, it stands to reason that we have evolved uh, under a certain range of climates in the past. We've adapted our societies to certain local climates. Uh, we are actually fairly adaptable. Humans live in a wide range of, of places across the world. Uh, so to some extent, it's it can be about keeping the climate, what we're used to in a particular location, because we we've built cities based on our own local climates. Uh, we, uh, but but in, in other cases, it, it's about making sure that we don't go beyond what is actually tolerable for people in the in the very very hot uh, uh, parts of the world, where there's, there's an upper limit to what we can cope with as, as as humans, or at least what we can kind of function within. So that that that, that that's part of it. It's about making sure that we don't make things inconvenient or impossible <laughs> for ourselves. But also, I think there's there's more of a uh, you, can, you can imagine there's a, a moral. Uh, uh, view on on our responsibility to other species as well. Other species on the earth are adapted to certain uh, local climates. Uh, we're changing that. Uh, so a lot of people, including myself, would, would regard it as unethical to, uh, to to make life impossible for, for other species and ecosystems. And, uh, th and there is some 
beauty in the earth that you can appreciate you know, in cold regions glaciers uh we, we love a cold i love a cold winter's um, morning for example uh i i do feel sad that the uh, the, the, the cold weather we used to see in the 1980s happens much less frequently now although it's, it's it's inconvenient but i did like a nice cold winter you know so uh so those kind of changes they can it's an emotional aspect to that uh as well as cultural aspects as but as well as also you know human practical and survival aspects and survival aspects from other species so a whole range of things yeah it's an interesting one i definitely see mm. us as stewards of the earth i think that as the only ones aboard spaceship earth that aren't just cargo but we're crew as well we have mm. Some sort of moral obligation, I think, to you know act well uh, as guardians of of the other creatures and the diversity that we've kind of inherited. Um, I wonder whether I wonder how much there is a price that needs to be paid if you could almost see it as a a balancing act between having an advanced civilization that is able to bring people out of poverty, that is able to raise living standards, that is able to access degrees of health and wellness and flourishing and economic value and so on and so forth, whether, well, presumably, I'll put it to you, is there a sacrifice that needs to be made in order for us to get that? Presumably by trying to restrict carbon emissions, what we're aiming to do is have our cake and eat it too. It's we want to be able to live in a technologically advanced world, but we also don't want these negative externalities that we have from uh, the climate being wrecked. Yeah, and, and this this is why this gets so con uh, controversial because people have different views about where this balance uh, should lie. Uh, so yes, we we want to uh, have you know, a, a, a good and happy and fulfilling and comfortable life for everybody on earth uh and uh that requires uh yeah a certain level of living standards which which we have historically relied on fossil fuels uh, and the use of the land uh, to achieve but now we're recognizing that the way we've done that in the past is ultimately not sustainable in the long term but at the same time, you can't rip that away immediately because we rely on it so much. So the phrase just transition gets used. So it's about how uh, where uh, people, uh, individuals, societies, uh, you know, towns and cities and even countries that rely on the old way of doing things, uh, how they can transition to a more sustainable way of doing things without disadvantaging people. So, if you, so for example, this, this whole communities rely on coal mining. Um, if we just shut down coal mining, as happened in the UK in the 80s, it has devastating effects on the local community. So you have to find ways to, to get, get through that and make sure that people have other, other sources of employment. Uh, and you don't just rip the heart out of a community and replace it with nothing else. So it's not a tri trivial problem to deal with. I learned that cheap energy is one of the best ways to raise people in developing countries out of poverty and that fossil fuels are one of the best ways to get them that. Is there a, a tension between trying to reduce fossil fuel use and also still trying to get developing countries up to an acceptable living standard? So there is a tension there. And the, but the other tension, of course, is the, the other effects of, of, of uh, fossil fuels, such as local air pollution and so on. Uh, so again, from the, in the... Uh, in the UK, uh, we experienced in the you know in the fifties and sixties incredible uh, air pollution incidents. My dad, uh, who was from the Black Country, would remember horrendous smogs uh, where it was just desperately unhealthy to be outside, uh, and uh, and a lot of people died of you know, respiratory uh, related problems and so on. Uh, so that was all to do with local air pollution. The UK is sort of you know by getting out of so much coal burning has reduced those problems. Those problems still exist in other parts of the world as well. Um, so yes, there is this tension, uh, as, as you said, but there's also the other effects of uh, air quality and so on you need, need to take into account as well. Yeah, I That's think what we talk about, like, kind of co-benefits is actually the phrase that gets used. There's, a co there's, a, there's other benefits of reducing fossil fuel use beyond the climate impact, like improving air quality and so on. Yeah, but then there would also be kind of co-costs, which is... Yeah the reduction of access to energy it's it's one of the things that strikes me is that we're kind of fortunate that the planet is as small as it is i know the earth's massive i know that it's big mm. but we can fly around it in the space of 24 hours pretty much now if you're on the right plane and if the planet was even bigger 
you would have so many different interest groups, so many different nation states. I mean, it's already hard to coordinate stuff at the moment with different actors and different agendas and so on. But let's say that Earth was able to sustain itself in the way that it was, but it was maybe twice as big, which would be an awful lot more landmass, an awful lot more humans, an awful lot more nation states, even wider varieties in terms of the uh, climates and the countries and so on and so forth. Um, trying to get, trying to find a middle ground where you have every different nation's interests aligned. You know, we've recently had COP26 in Glasgow. And you know, f for all that countries can go there and say that we want to do this, each country has its own different agenda about where it is, what its desires are for growth, for economic policy, for everything. So yeah, mm -hmm. I think um, we're, we're probably quite fortunate that we have, although it's massive, as small a sample size of planet to work with. Yeah, that's quite that's a very interesting point, which I, I, I'd never heard before. Yeah, so you, you, uh, uh, yeah, th things could be even worse, is what you're, what you're, what you're saying. It could be even uh, more uh, complex. Yeah, you, you could yeah, need yeah, 50 yeah. million lines of code in order to be able to work out what's yes. going on. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. That's an interesting one, but the but the complexity of the of the issue and you know and the negotiations at COP and so on it it is a huge uh, a huge problem because uh, yeah governments have responsibilities to their own people and economies and so on and and yes they they want to on the one hand keep protect their populations from the worst impacts of climate change but they don't want to uh, just radically change everything uh, especially uh, the developing world which uh, is seeing that we in the developed world have benefited from all this stuff historically they uh, are, are they want they want some support from us uh, in at least making making this transition, this just transition I was talking about earlier. Well, yeah, because they're still playing catch-up to try and get their living standards to where they see the West already benefiting from it, whether that be because we got there first or we have slightly preferable climates or whatever economic policies. Mm. And because of the current state of the climate, you could see it as these bourgeois Western bastards coming in and telling you that wagging their finger at you and saying no 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 you need to be along with us and he said well we're, we're not in the same boat here we have completely different living standards and uh, economic structure than you do so making developing countries sing to the same hymn sheet as a developed country is going to cause even more disparity yeah and that's, that's exactly at the heart of uh, a lot of the negotiations that we're at negotiations that were happening in the last couple of weeks uh, in Glasgow at COP26. And the other aspect, of course, is the fact that uh, uh, these countries, along with everywhere else, are living with the effects of climate change that are already happening. So they've already warmed the world by over a degree Celsius. We're already seeing some changes in extreme weather. We're already seeing an increase in sea levels in some cases. So the more vulnerable parts of the world, which, which uh, happen to be uh, often the countries which have contributed less to the issue are now asking for support in dealing with that, putting in place adaptation measures. There's a strong argument comes from some quarters, oh, we should just adapt our way out of climate change or at least adapt our way through it. Uh, but you need to actually put things in place to do that adaptation. And again, it's the same countries that, that need support on uh, you know, getting away from fossil fuels and deforestation that need support in adaptation uh, because they happen to be in the hotter parts of the world and perhaps low-lying countries and so on so again this is another big issue that was addressed at that cop 26 but not fully resolved did you what was your what's your synopsis what was your sort of summary of that i mean i'm, I'm gonna guess this is kind of like you've got a uh illustration of glastonbury behind you cop 26 must be a little bit like the glastonbury for uh for climate scientists but just maybe a little bit less fun um what's your how did you feel that that went based on sort of what you know and what you can tell us well, the, uh, the yeah, that's a very, another very good analogy. Actually, the, 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 these climate conferences are huge. There's so many things going on. Uh, the at the heart of it, yeah, the pyramid stage, if you if you like, is is the negotiations. That's what everyone, the, the rest of the world, sees. Uh, where this the countries are negotiating about which what emissions they will uh, they will they will cut uh, and how and will they support each other in adaptation. But then around that, the rest of the festival, the other stages in the festival, is also this. Many different, even more delegates are, are having conversations amongst themselves, linking to the negotiations, updating uh, ourselves on each other's work on climate science, what this means for policy, hearing from policymakers about what they need. So it's a big sort of meeting of minds around this negotiations. So it, there's two different levels to it. The, the outcome of the negotiations 
Uh, I would probably say uh, it's not as good as we would have hoped. Uh, well, not as good as we needed to keep ourselves on track to meet the Paris Agreement targets of limiting warming well below two degrees. It didn't achieve that yet, but it was a good step along the way. A lot of positive did ha- things did happen. There were some good agreements on uh, reducing deforestation, uh, actually specifically identifying coal get, uh, as an issue that needs to be addressed. There was an aim to get countries to uh, commit to getting out of coal completely. That wasn't achieved, but there was a a commitment to reduce coal use. There were other things on adaptation, again, not going as far as was hoped, but uh, more than was feared. So it's a halfway house, really. Beyond that, the uh, the I think having this, this the, the the opportunity of a networking and sharing the information, sharing the science, um, that was reasonably positive. I think there's a good a shared understanding building as well, which I think that will help inform the next COP in a year's time, where more needs to be done on the negotiations. Is it annual? It is. Yes, there's one every year, except for last year. Uh, when there wasn't one because of uh, uh, the pandemic. So the one from last year, Glasgow was supposed to happen last year, basically, yeah. Has there ever been one which has attracted as much media attention as the one that we've just seen? Because I, you could have told me that this happened once every five years and I would have believed you. Yeah, so th- this was this was particularly prominent, uh, especially in the UK, uh, because we were the host nation. Um, but because also it was, it's been five years since the the last prominent one, which was in Paris. So the Paris Agreement, which I mentioned a few minutes ago, was at a previous COP, which was uh, very prominent because that was the first time where there was an actual agreement between all countries uh, to take action on climate change that had never been achieved before in previous COPs. So that was very prominent, and also. The the ambition which had been uh, uh, talked about in previous COPs before Paris was to limit warming to two degrees global warming. The ambition became to try to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees. That was another key thing in Paris. So the Paris one was as probably as prominent, or almost as prominent as the, as, as, as the Glasgow one, but they're not always as prominent as this, that's for sure, yeah. What's the enforcement mechanism if some nation state doesn't abide by what they're doing? If China just tells you what you want to hear, but then decides to just crack on spunking loads of CO2 out? So that, so uh, the the, the, uh, the commitments can be monitored. There's, there's, there's processes in place to sort of check on how emissions are actually uh, progressing. That can be uh, that, that that can be. Uh, uh, that can be audited. That uh, the deforestation can be monitored by satellite. So the data uh, is there. You, you can measure how much the CO two is uh, building up in the atmosphere. You can see where uh, where emissions are are, are coming from. Um, but in terms of actual enforcement, like with any international uh, agreements, uh, it's actually fundamentally it's down to almost peer pressure between the countries. Uh, essentially, uh, you know, there's, there's no international law as such. It's basically countries uh, gentlemen's agreement it, it, exactly yes yeah so it's so that so it's like like any of these things it's about the you know the the, the community uh you know uh, encouraging its, itself and policing itself really there's another thing to consider uh i want to start talking about china in a second but we're at least not in open disputes with most of the countries on the planet Can you imagine how much more difficult it would be if we were seeing some of the uh, nation divides uh, in terms of territories from the 1900s, World War I, World War II, Cold War, lack of communication between different countries, and we had some climate challenges to overcome because you would, there's no way that you get in coordination. In fact, it's perhaps because of the tragedy of the commons, it's maybe even in the interests of particular countries that might be able to weather the storm of climate change better to be able to utilize their uh, industrial machinery to just try and get themselves as far ahead because they're still in conflict with whoever else it might be. It's kind of fortunate that we're not at war at the moment. Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, although another aspect of this is the you know, climate change being an extra stress on, on, on certain countries and so on. So, uh, again, this is one of the particularly controversial issues is about the role of uh, climate change and in international security and wars and so on. You, you can't really pin any specific wars on climate change as such. But but uh, uh, you can start to see that um, 
it doesn't help when you get more extreme weather in a region which is already uh, under tension uh, than an additional natural disaster such as crop failures and, and, and that kind of thing. It's it's not helping at all, you know. So that's a further thing to to bear in mind in the future. I saw a stat saying that China contributes thirty percent of the entire world's CO two. Do you know how true that is? Uh, in terms of emissions, it's it's the largest um, uh, emitter. Uh, so uh, they, they they do have a huge huge population, and they have uh, you know ramped up their energy uh, production in the last twenty years uh, as they've gone undergone a rapid uh, development. So uh, so yes, uh, China is the biggest uh, emitter uh, as a country. It's not the biggest emitter per person uh, because they have a very large uh, population. The emissions per person are still smaller than the USA, for example. Oh, uh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, but in terms of the actual emissions, they're the, they're, the, they're the largest, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So I had um, a conversation the other day which really opened my eyes to this. So I, I'm quite concerned about China. Um, I, I think that sort of globally it's, it's a threat that we need to be taking far more seriously. And I started talking about this particular statistic, that it's the largest single contributor of CO2 on the planet. And one of uh, the, the person that I was speaking to uh, Richard decided to say, well, yeah, that may be true, but you have to also think that one of the benefits that we've seen in somewhere like the UK is that we've outsourced a lot of our industrial production to China. So the fact that you can then point to China and say, look at all of the stuff that you're throwing out into the atmosphere is, and we can stand on a high horse and say, look at how green we are. It's facilitated by the fact that a lot of our production has now been outsourced there that we're getting electronics and machine parts and so on and so forth from that country. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when, when you're uh, looking at a country's claims on how well it's reduced its own emissions, so for the UK, for example, uh, monitors its, uh, our own emissions, we were the first country to put in place the Climate Change Act, so a legal obligation on the government uh, to reduce emissions. Uh, and the Climate Change Committee, this independent advisory body, will track um, the UK's progress uh, against its commitments. And you have to be uh, very clear about whether the emissions reductions being quoted are the total emissions that the nation is responsible for, including what, what's called offshoring, yeah, what, what we've been uh, what we're buying from other countries elsewhere in the world, which includes China, but other places as well. Uh, uh, are you including that, or are you just not talking about domestic emissions? What we're emitting locally. Uh, so you're absolutely right that you have to look at the bigger picture. We're responsible ultimately for uh, emissions elsewhere in the world. It's what we well consume as, as well as what we create. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. I found. I mean, I, understanding stuff like that, I find very interesting. I think that mm. you know, having that in the back of your mind when I can still be concerned about China, but having that as a, a little bit of a um, a caveat was was interesting. Does it does it annoy you that climate science sometimes gets forgotten or tarnished due to crazy stunts and protests that grab attention? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one. It can. Um, so I, I I think that some things can be unhelpful if if they're yeah annoying a large part of the uh, yeah the, the population when people are. Uh, you know, particularly if they're like obstructing public transport or something, I, I personally think that is sending out the wrong message. You know, I, I'm an advocate of public transport and and, and cycling and that kind of thing. Um, so when some people have, have used public transport <laughs> to get their message across, uh, I think that was the wrong target. It's a bit self-defeating. Uh, yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, I can see how keeping the issue in the news uh, is a useful thing uh, as well. Uh, the, I mean, it, when they're breaking the law, you know, and when people are perhaps uh, even potentially endangering other people, then I get, you know, I'm not, not happy with that. Um, so the, you know, if you if if, if if you go as far as, yeah, some things can some things can be counterproductive. So you have to be quite quite careful about what 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 you're doing. I I, I think it's uh, it's a very difficult area. I would much rather. Uh, that uh, say that the that the media, news media, for example, um, gave prominence to 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 climate science uh, in a in an unbiased way, 
Uh, one of the protests last year was particularly targeting certain uh, sections of the media, wasn't it? And the reasons that the protesters gave for that was that they saw that this, uh, in certain sections of the media, they, they were saying didn't give a, a true picture. Uh, I wouldn't want the media uh, covered climate change in a in a, a good, unbiased, fact-based way so that people then didn't have to feel they had to take this kind of radical action. Yeah, I um I read an article a while ago by Scott Alexander from Slate Star Codex. It's called The Toxoplasma of Rage. It's very interesting. And he talks about the fact that activists or anybody that's trying to push forward a uh, a narrative or an agenda, um they have a balancing act to make that the more outlandish and gregarious stunts that they can do, they do capture more attention, but inevitably they polarize opinion a lot more too. Uh, on the flip side of that, the stunts which are perhaps much more persuasive and well-meaning and rational don't capture as much attention, but don't cause the polarity and also don't um, that it, it's easy to get people on side. So there is a payoff that you need to decide between exposure and impact or exposure and persuasion. And uh, from my side based on what i see i think it, it feels to me like climate activism is sacrificing a lot of persuasion for impact and i think that that being drawn back now you may be right maybe that could be assisted through other channels but from your uh seat in the middle of the climate debate what would you do if you were someone whose job it was to try and improve the messaging uh you know it, it's not good enough to just put Excel spreadsheets up like it needs to be engaging. There has to be a reason for people to take care, but also this this undertone that you, because you drive a car to work, you should feel bad about what you're doing. I don't think that that I don't think shaming people into compliance is the right way to go about it either. So, w what would you? What are your thoughts on the messaging at the moment and moving forward? Yeah, I I I I agree. Nobody likes to be told what to do, uh, and nobody likes to be shamed about what they what they're doing. Um, I much prefer things which are, you know, more positive and and creative. And you and you can find things which are uh, attention grabbing and, and and creative and more positive. An example here locally: uh, some local activists um, uh, last year uh, hired a load of road cones and they put in an unofficial cycle path uh, on one of the main roads in Exeter that goes to the hospital. So they just put this psychopath in. It was completely unauthorized. And then they sort of sat by and they and they watched and they filmed uh, people using it to see, well, first of all, to see if people would use it. And they did see that hospital staff, doctors and nurses who cycled to work were using this, this psychopath. Um, half a day later, the, the council then took it away because it wasn't authorized. Uh, but I think I, I quite like that as a more kind of constructive thing. It didn't do anybody any harm. Uh, and it, it illustrated the fact that the cycle path there would be really useful. Um, so I would like to see more of that kind of thing. Yeah, more more, more positive, uh, imaginative, and, and creative things that uh, that really are helpful uh, rather than rather rather than negative. That's my personal view. One of the things that I definitely notice in myself, you brought up the cycle lane. So in Gosforth, which is where I live in Newcastle, the uh, two lane high street. Sorry, the two per side, so a four-lane high street was reduced down to a two-lane high street to accommodate a cycle lane. Mm. The traffic on that now is is disgusting. It's absolutely awful. Anybody that tries to mm. get from the Great Great North Road down into Newcastle knows what I'm talking about. Um, there's something there's something about that that is a little bit uncomfortable because you observe the inconvenience that you suffer from a front row seat. You know that if you're stuck between 3 p.m. and 5.30 p.m. or at any time during the morning on that road, that it's going to take you 10 minutes to do a mile, and that's going to annoy you. And you knew you also remember a time not long ago when it didn't cause that long. I think creating a grand narrative, creating a more cohesive understanding around why these measures get put in place. So let's say that adding a cycle lane helps to reduce carbon emissions by whatever percent. I don't know that. I don't know that. I just see what broadly to me looks like a mostly unused cycle lane and a ton of traffic that's tailed back. So what I think is missing 
first off, I would suggest to climate activists to um, dial back the amount of shame that gets put onto people. I don't think that that's an effective strategy at all. I think it just makes people kind of resent whatever it is that you're doing. But uh, a broader understanding of the direction that we're trying to move toward and how individual actions contribute to that i think that that's important because it connects the sacrifice that you make if someone said to me if i was able to feel good about the fact that i know i need to set off 10 minutes earlier to get to town but that by me setting off 10 minutes earlier to get to town i'm actually helping in a way to reduce down carbon emissions because we have increased other people's ability to cycle to work then i'm like oh okay like i kind of feel i kind of feel good about this and or at least it dampens down the inconvenience do you understand what i mean yes yeah and i, I think uh, uh also uh, we, we could encourage people to think a little bit uh, outside their own kind of narrow uh view again i don't mean this in a, in a negative way but sometimes people don't realize that they could do things differently uh, sometimes they genuinely can't uh, sometimes they could do if given a bit of help. So again, using the cycle lanes one as, as an example, um, there's a lot of people that, that have no choice but to use a car. That's that's for sure. I mean, he, here in Exeter, we're a small town, small city, but with a rural area around it. It's very hard to get anywhere in the rural area without a car. Um, within the city, um, it's actually a, a much easier than a lot of people think to get around by bike. For example, I, I haven't had a car for two years. Uh, in that first period. I was actually quite surprised about how easy it was to live without a car. I just use my bike and uh, public transport uh, and, and trains. Uh, some people, I think a lot of people could do more like that. I recognise a lot of people could not do that. But those who have no choice, uh, uh, th th their lives would be easier if those who, who, who do have a choice could, could make a different choice. But often those people can only make that choice if they're helped along the way by having yes safe cycling routes and that kind of thing so it's not all down to individual people it's about helping changing the system to help people make these make these choices how much do individuals decisions about what they do you know one person remembering to turn the lights off or putting the the lights on a timer or switching to a hybrid car or an electric vehicle how much is that going to make an impact even if you start to scale that on mass across an entire population and how much of it is from other things that are more out of our control. So perhaps things that are in industry, business, controlled by the government, uh, transportation, owned by companies and stuff like that, that as opposed to individuals. So the, uh, yeah, the, the, the small actions like turning the lights off and or change the low energy light bulbs and that kind of thing, yeah, have, 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 a, have a small impact. It, it is system level change, like entirely different energy sources. Uh, so not having uh, coal-fired power stations, having instead uh, renewables or nuclear uh, or whatever. So that's a sort of system-level change, which uh, uh, would need to be. You know, people would would obviously have to buy into that as as, as consumers, and uh, uh, and it needs to be set up, set up in a way which is not disadvantaging uh, people. So you kind of yeah, it's, it's seeing yourself as as part of the bigger uh, bigger picture picture really yeah what's your thoughts on nuclear energy personally speaking uh, i uh, would be surprised if we could uh, achieve the targets without nuclear energy that's a personal view not as an expert uh you know i'm a climate modeler uh, this is just from you know me seeing the debates from from where i from where i sit uh, i see arguments uh which, which say it can be done without nuclear energy uh so you know, I'm speaking as a non-expert here. I'd be surprised if we could do it without without nuclear energy. I think the problem is so severe that we need to throw everything at it. Basically, we can't rule anything out. That's my view. Why do you think it is that there is a quite a big swath of climate um, activist people who dislike nuclear energy? I think that that links to the yeah, the the the, uh, the, uh, the origins of the green movement, uh, who. Uh, who traditionally uh, were sort of you know, suspicious of any, any, any kind of technology. Uh, and of course, you know, there have been horrendous nuclear accidents in, in the past, of course. Uh, the uh, technology is very different now. And uh, the uh, uh, new nuclear uh, power stations are are being designed and built to a yeah, much, much higher standard. And uh, the risk assessments are done to account, account for climate change as well. Yeah, you know, kind of very high temperatures, uh, 
Uh, oh, so nuclear plants that are being created now are being future-proofed against potential higher global temperatures? Exactly, uh, exactly, wow. yes. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. so sophisticated. Um, mm. I had Alex Epstein on the show quite a while ago, The Moral Case for Fossil mm. Fuels, so he's a philosopher that's talking about... and. Um, I don't understand enough about the impacts of different types of fuels to be able to kind of dig into his data. But what I did take away from it was uh, a surprise at how much most climate activist groups seem to be very averse to nuclear energy, which is, you know, aside from a couple of very big accidents which occurred on version 0.1 uh reactors and plants that were very unsafe um it 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 surprises me that that isn't just what everybody is throwing throwing their efforts at um i, I mean it, it 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 is true that the high level waste is is a long term problem uh that you kind of yeah you'll be bequeathing that to future generations but the, it it's a relatively small amount uh you know in the in the grand scheme of things but it but it does exist so Part of the concern is about what we do with this stuff, which is going to be around for um, uh, for, for, for thousands of years, uh, as well as the obvious con uh, concern based on past experience um, of past accidents. But uh, again, so this is again why it's such, such a controversial topic and you get very, very polarised views on it. Richard Betts, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with what you do, why should they go? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Richard A. Betts uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can also uh, look at what the, uh, the Met Office and the University of Exeter are putting out. I work at both of these uh, these places. You could you could look at the the technical report of the climate change risk assessment, which I I led, which was published this year. Uh, so look that up. It's a, a UK climate risk uh, is a website. Uh, so you can look there for some of my latest work. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm active on social media. Uh, so I'm always happy to have a conversation about this. I just talk to anybody who's interested in climate change. So happy to have a discussion. 